The following live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati is presented by agamayoga.com. Namaste and good evening to all of you. Let us continue our presentation of the fundamental text of yoga, the Geranda Samhita. Here in our satsangs, I have received, uh, for a long time, I had received the request to make commentaries on the, to explain, to show, to share with you the fundamental yogic texts. And I started a few weeks ago, a number of weeks ago, with the presentation of the Geranda Samhita, which is the most encyclopedic, the most... Uh, broad of all the of all these texts and uh, at times unfortunately going through an endless list of asanas or kriyas or mudras or other such techniques can be a little bit tedious because it is not the purpose of geranda of the great yogi geranda in his text the geranda samhita and it is neither my purpose in these satsangs to actually give initiations, to give proper 100% explanations of these techniques. It is more the purpose of these satsangs to share the spirit of yoga. As you know from the first level intensive lecture called Svadhyaya, the self-study, the spiritual study is very praised by the yogis as the fact that if you study a certain such text, it brings you in telepathic resonance with the one who wrote it. So since a few weeks, we are making an exercise of telepathic resonance with Geranda by reading the Geranda Samhita and commenting upon it when necessary, we are actually entering into the mental world of Geranda. Yes, sometimes it's tedious because this work is like an encyclopedia of yoga and it goes through a lot of descriptions of techniques without going into details. But as I said already a couple of times, what is very important is the spiritual contact, is the atmosphere. <coughs> it is the universe of the yogis. It is so interesting when you compare this with the modern gymnastics and fitness dubbed yoga, to compare what did the great yogis see in asanas, in mudras, in bandhas, in kriyas, what are they talking about when they talk about effects? And as compared with the modern spirit, where yoga has been stripped of its magical, of its mystical part, and it is transformed into what it is today in many places. That's why, uh, bear with me, because we are going, for example, now we are in the middle of the list of asanas. There are 32 classical asanas according to Geranda, and most of them have very confusing descriptions, like without seeing a photo, without seeing a picture of that asana, you wouldn't even know what they are talking about precisely. And moreover, this description has its slightly 
frustrating part because, of course, um, it, um, it's not possible to go into all the details of this initiation. So, I am, without further ado, I will try to conclude tonight the chapter on asanas and maybe give you a taste of the next chapter which goes one step deeper into the practice of Kundalini Yoga. Last time I had read the shloka number 20 describing the practice of Guptasana. So we are somewhere in the middle of the asanas, about halfway through. And I'm continuing directly with the shloka number 21, which describes another of the fundamental 32 asanas, an asana which is definitely caught here in the program in Agama Yoga, which is Matsyasana, the pose of the fish. About the pose of the fish, Geranda has to say the following. Perform an open Padmasana, which means when he described Padmasana, for those of you who never heard the previous lecture, the previous satsang, he described Padmasana, the lotus pose, not simply as the meditative lotus pose that we all see in yoga books, but he described it as a complicated asana with the arms crossed behind the back, which technically in yoga is actually called Pada Padmasana. And to make clear, and you can see that he called that Padmasana, that was his lineage, that's what he learned from his teacher, that was the terminology which he liked, but it's not that he doesn't know, because actually here he says perform an open Padmasana, like a Padmasana which is not bound behind the back, which means an actual Padmasana, a regular Padmasana without crossing the arms. Lie on the back, going from Padmasana, so lie back, and hold or surround the head by the two elbows. This is Matsyasana, the destroyer of diseases. Holding the head is usually a posture where the yogis hold their head in some way like this. They practice a mudra. Of course, in the Agama variation, which I have learned from my teachers, it's a slightly different approach to it with, uh, when it comes to the position of the hands. I could say a lot of things about it. The most important thing being that conceptually, while he describes Matsyasana, a posture which you do from the lotus pose and then lying on the back, most of the yoga teachers of today who teach such asanas, they, are, they would call this posture uh, Supta Padmasana as a variation of Supta Vajrasana. And Matsyasana, they do it starting from the diamond pose, starting from Vajrasana and not starting from the lotus pose. Even if we go in terms of chakras, the effects of Matsyasana, when it is done the way we do it in Agama, they are acting on the second chakra, on Svadishtana chakra, while if you perform Matsyasana in the way in which Geranda describes it, with the legs in the lotus pose, it will activate Manipura chakra, exactly as the other famous asana called Supta Vajrasana does. And that's why I'm saying do not get very much entangled in the names because India being a subcontinent and yoga being a vernacular tradition, secret, esoteric, kept very private by a few teachers, 
because of this it was inevitable that there will be confusion of names and the same name used for different techniques by different teachers and all that. The other interesting thing which I would like to say is that while about 75% of the asanas in this text are presented by uh, Geranda without effects, like he describes do this, do this, do this, this is Guptasana. And that's it. What does it do? Well, that's what you learn from your teacher. It's not meant to be reminded here. In some of them, nevertheless, he suddenly comes up, he's so very enthusiastic about that asana, that suddenly he comes and says, this is really great, and it does this and that. Here is a brief example, where he says, this is Matsyasana, and then he feels like he wants to add the destroyer of diseases. So, Geranda considers that Matsyasana is a top healing asana, is a very healing asana. And we move to Matsyandrasana, described in two shlokas, 22 and 23 in this chapter. Matsyendra is a name of a great yogi, taken as a name. This is not an asana which describes something from the nature. Mritasana was the posture of the corpse or of death. Matsyasana is the posture of the fish. But Matsyendra is not an object from the nature or a simple domestic surrounding environment thing. Matsyendra is the name of a great yogi and not far from here. It will be followed about two shlokas later by Goraksha. Sana Goraksha is another great yogi, the disciple of Matsyendra. These two yogis, Matsyendra and Goraksha, they are the ones who laid the foundation of Hatha Yoga and Kundalini Yoga in India. And that's why the names of Matsyendra and Goraksha are especially important in Hatha Yoga. Sometimes Hatha Yoga is even called the Yoga of Matsyendra, Matsyendra's style of yoga. That's why, because this Matsyendra, he loved to sit in a certain asana, which most of you know due to the first level intensive, because of this his posture became remarkable. However, this Matsyendrasana is slightly different from what is called today Matsyendrasana, also not mentioning the fact that the original, the full Matsyendrasana, is a rather acrobatic, difficult asana, and that's why people today in yoga schools, like in Agama, when they do Matsyendra or anything close to it, they actually perform Arda Matsyendrasana, a halfway Matsyendra, given the fact that Matsyendrasana is so difficult. 22 and 23 as shlokas say, keep the abdominal area and back at ease, so like relax the torso, the middle part, Fold the left leg and place it over the right thigh or knee. There's a, used an ambiguous Sanskrit word which means the mid part of the leg. So it could be the thigh, it could be the knee. Then place on this one the elbow of the right hand. So you come with the elbow around. And the face in the palm of the right hand and fix the gaze between the eyebrows. This is the Matsyandrasana. Here in Agama, we perform it with a full torsion, which is the way to do it for medical purposes. Geranda got it that Matsyendra was sitting with an elbow over the knee and holding his head like this and doing Trataka in the forehead. That automatically will change some of the energy prescriptions of Matsyendrasana or Arda Matsyendrasana. The way it is done in Agama 
it works at the level of the throat chakra and it has some very beautiful effects. This great asana, which many yoga teachers of today consider as the number one most healing asana of all yoga. There are about four asanas in yoga which are extremely healing. Paschimottanasana, Ardhamatsyandrasana, Sarvangasana and Shirshasana. This very, very healing asana, this emblematic asana. Uh, here, Geranda does not feel like saying anything. He doesn't say this is Matsyandrasana which heals this and that or which gives you vision of the Akasha Tattva or something. He again goes, leaves it silent. It's something which you learn from other texts or from your teacher or from whatever other source of initiation you have got. And we are moving to 24, continuing the list of asanas with Paschimottanasana, one of the great classics. Here, described as follows. Stretch the legs on the ground stiff as sticks. This is very important. Several times they use this syntax, stiff as sticks. Like when your legs are stiff as sticks, it means they don't fold, they don't bend at all. And this is very important because today, due to the mixture of Chinese Tai Chi and other such things, there has appeared, and due to the very weird theories and most often phony theories on the so-called alignment of the gymnastic yoga teachers of today, due to all of these things, sometimes there appears the sensation that you, in some of these asanas you can cheat, you can slightly bend your knees because you shouldn't stretch them and lock them. But a text like Geranda Samhita says your legs stiff as sticks. Stiff as sticks means literally that. It means the leg is locked. The joint of the knee is stretched to the maximum. It is just to the extent where stiffness is settling down. And stretch the legs on the ground stiff as sticks and place the forehead on the shins. Some people even translate here as the forehead on the knees. The truth is that if any one of you here in this room is extremely flexible in the body and you are getting to do a perfect Paschimottanasana where your body is like a pair of pliers, you simply fold from here and lean completely over the legs, then the distance between the pelvis and the forehead is considerably longer than the length of your thigh. So actually when you fold over your own legs, you are not touching the knees, your forehead is coming somewhere on the shins, lower than the knees, further down than the knees. Uh, of course, this requires a perfect flexibility of the body. So he says, place the forehead on the shins, catching the toes by the hands. Nothing, simple enunciation, and it ends, of course, by saying this is called Paschimottanasana. It is interesting to see that Geranda has used a lot of warnings of secrecy, like this should be kept secret, this should not be shown to everybody, and stuff like this in the Kriyas. In the asanas, he doesn't come very much because like many people have seen yogis doing asanas, and it's like, okay, you cannot, Paschimottanasana, no, you just 
lurk in the jungle and see some yogi doing his Paschimottanasana, then of course you know how Paschimottanasana is done externally speaking. So he doesn't say you should keep a secret about this, but for example when he goes to chapter 3, the next chapter about the mudras, which are practices where Kundalini is involved, then again he becomes very secretive. So in whenever he speaks about asanas, very seldom would he mention that this is something special that you shouldn't teach to other people, it's secret and so on. 24 was Paschimottanasana, and 25 and 26 describe Gorakshasana, another asana dedicated to a great yogi. Goraksha, the disciple of Matsyendra. Place the two feet turned upwards between the calves and thighs, like a little bit like in the Svastikasana, and hide them by the two hands outstretched. So it's a way of putting the hands over the feet crossway like this. Contract the throat and fix the gaze on the tip of the nose. This simple formulation which is encountered in about five to ten of the asanas which Garanda gives actually makes it much more than an asana and stronger because it adds to the simple practice of this Gorakshasana. It adds the practice of Jalantharabandha which here in Agama we do it full-fledged with the support of hands and some energy circuits, but still the principle remains the same, and therefore when he says contract the throat and fix the gaze on the tip of the nose, he adds two additional yoga techniques into the straightforward practice of Gorakshasana. This is not Gorakshasana, it's Gorakshasana with Jalandharabandha and with the Nasikagra Drishti, Trataka on the tip of your own nose by crossing the eyes and looking at the tip of one's own nose. And he says, this is called Gorakshasana and it brings Siddhi or perfection to the yogins. In this text, Gorak, uh, Geranda often uses the word Siddhi and he uses it ambiguously on purpose. In the traditions of Kashmiri Shaivism, and of Shaiva Siddhanta from the south of India, Siddha or Siddhi is a word which is meant to designate enlightenment, spiritual perfection. A Siddha is not a person that can hypnotize another person. A Siddha is a person that has reached Samadhi, Nirvikalpa, Samadhi at least. In uh, other traditions of India, the word Siddhi means paranormal abilities such as clairvoyance or other such abilities. Geranda never makes it clear what he means by it because he described Gorakshasana and he says this Gorakshasana brings Siddhi perfection to the yogi, which means it gets the yogi enlightened or it means it generates many Siddhis on Ajna Chakra. This posture will work among others on Ajna Chakra and therefore here he leaves it on purpose ambiguously, which is the effect, but at least he mentions some effect in this Gorakshasana. And we move with 27 to Utkatasana. Many people wonder why this asana is in the curriculum of Agama when it is, seems to be a simple secondary asana, but we have to respect the tradition. Geranda places it among the 32 key asanas, most important asanas of yoga. Unassuming that it is, here is Utkatasana in Shloka 27. Stand on the toes with the heels raised in the air. 
place the bottom on the heels. This is known as Utkatasana. All those of you who have done Utkatasana in the second, third, or whenever it is taught here in Agama, then uh, you know that there are, of course, many, many other details of practice of it. It has never been the intention of Geranda to teach you yoga through his text. It is only an encyclopedia for the connoisseurs, for those who know, to remember, ah, it's good I didn't forget Utkatasana. Of course, Utkatasana is still there because Geranda himself mentions it. 28. Sankatasana. Place the left foot and calf on the ground, surrounded by the left leg, surround the left leg by the right leg. Place the hands on the knees. It's so difficult, it's a sort of virasana, as we call it here. It's a very contracted virasana. And then he says, this is sankatasana. Again, he doesn't bother to tell you what sankatasana is good for, what chakra it arouses. There are many, many such holes in the yoga tradition. And the only way of covering them is through the teachers who, from mouth to ear, they transmitted these from generation to generation. Then 29 and 30, he gets to one of the very powerful asanas of yoga, the Mayurasana, the peacock pose. Place the two palms on the ground and prop the navel onto the two elbows. Stand on the hands with the body like a stick. The yogis in this posture, they have seen like a bird on its two little legs. And they compared it with a peacock because the bird is like disproportionately big compared with the legs. And the peacock, especially when it blooms its tail, feathers, it looks like huge and standing on just two thin little legs. A yogi standing on his arms like this, on his elbows and hands, looks a little, to some yogis, it looked a little bit like a peacock. This is called Mayurasana. And here, suddenly, he becomes prolific. He loves Mayurasana. Mayurasana is perhaps the strongest Manipura Chakra Asana in yoga. And Mayurasana is always one of the arguments against the people who think that yoga, especially in the Agama style or others, is a sort of flabby, weak. People say, oh, I want to do something dynamic and sweat. Believe me, you can sweat in Mayurasana, there is nobody that I have seen that can do Mayurasana five minutes, for example. I have seen a few crazy people taking it to three minutes, three minutes and a half, four minutes. Like any one of you thinks that yoga is weak and that you have to do downward dogs until you start panting. My opinion, my challenge, the gauntlet which I throw is do show me a Mayurasana of 10 minutes and then tell me how weak yoga is. It's a total illusion that if you stay in an asana for a long time, that makes it flabby or weak. It's not if you want, you can find asanas which blow your bulb and bake your noodle all the way. Then those, try to keep them stable for a longer time and you will see that it's almost impossible. That's why I say it's an illusion, and very often this agitation is just an agitation of the mind. Because if you stay, if you want physical strength, and muscles, and contraction, and adrenaline, and fire, you shouldn't go further than Mayurasana. 
Mayurasana is your perfect exercise. Get it to five minutes, get it to ten minutes, then come and tell me that yoga, that the asanas are wimpy and flabby. They are not. It depends what asanas we are talking about, because some of them are for getting out of your body, for quitting the physical body and going in the astral body, and then naturally they have to be relaxed, while some of them are very very intense. Mayurasana is one of my favorites, one of the arch examples of asanas which can be taken, like I don't know who can ever imagine what would happen if you try to do Mayurasana for 3 hours and 48 minutes, which is the standard where the asanas can be pushed. I haven't seen anybody who can do it 5. Where who would be the madman who would practice Mayurasana every day until taking it to at least 30 minutes. The yogis say that your body becomes so light that you start levitating, that your body naturally, to protect your arms and the weight you put on them, the body starts floating in mid-air. So Mayurasana is great. And this is what Geranda has to say. This is called Mayurasana, which burns out all overeaten, stagnant, and unwholesome food. So... All when you have overeaten, that overfood is rotting in your stomach. A solution given by the yogis in the Kriya Yoga was the tiger, practicing the tiger. After three hours and a half, throw it up because it's poisonous anyway. But there is another solution if you hate the throwing up solution. You can do Mayurasana. And Mayurasana is like shifting the gear of your stomach. It's like it's putting your stomach in overdrive. It's giving so much fire that you'd digest a horseshoe if you had swallowed it by accident. It simply makes your stomach burn anything and everything. That's why it says, which burns out all overeaten, stagnant and unwholesome. There is no more indigestion, constipation or unwholesome food that you ate something not very good a bit toxic. It stimulates the gastric fire. It digests the deadliest poison and quickly cures abdominal tumors called in Ayurveda gulma and fever. Most of these effects immediately show that although Geranda never said Manipura, there is only one energy which can do all the things meant here. What is something which burns all the overeaten, stagnant and all unwholesome food Stimulates the gastric fire, digests the deadliest poison, quickly cures abdominal tumors, and deals with fever. It's only the fire energy. It's only Manipura Chakra which has this effect. This is how many of these things were written. They were not written directly. Like they require a sort of a minimum connection, a minimum th- co- connection he has to make in your brain. And then you say, okay, so this Mayurasana is most probably working on Manipura Chakra. Yes, that's precisely what it does, although Geranda never says it. He's tricky. He says many of the effects, and this is guiding. (coughs) And he ends by saying it is a very useful posture. As we teach it in Agama, there have been yogis measured by Therese Bros in the 1950s in India, a French medical doctor who made a PhD on yogis and their exceptional physical accomplishments. 
and they discovered yogis who could be given poison, yogis who could be stung by a scorpio or bitten by a cobra, by a king cobra, and they would not die because they would perform a lot of mayurasana. That's why it says here that mayurasana digests the deadliest poison. It doesn't mean only eaten poison, it means any poison, any form of poisonous thing. You can think that a poison in your system is, for example, that you get an infection. Well, there is almost no infection for somebody practicing Mayurasana. The only problem with Mayurasana is that it's a hard-to-do asana and people quit. Anybody who is stubborn in Mayurasana and pushes it to at least five minutes will obtain effects which are already paranormal. In some asanas, as I said, you need to sit four hours. In Mayurasana, you don't even come close to four hours, and many amazing things happen. That's why Mayurasana is indeed exceptional, and even Geranda concludes, it says it cures abdominal tumors called gulma and fever, and he concludes it is a very useful posture. Like very seldom does he lose his cool he just describes asanas and says, this is Utkatasana. But with Mayurasana, he kind of lost it. He spent two lines of effect saying, it does this, this, it's wonderful, and so on. And then he says, he says, well, oh, one over the other. It's a very useful posture. Like you shouldn't miss Mayurasana from your practice. Indeed, Mayurasana is one of the asanas where you can see the power of yoga. Yoga and its techniques are very often discreet. It's a cultivated power. Like you do Paschimottanasana and how many people really understand how powerful Paschimottanasana is or could be? Only if you do it a lot, then you get to see. But Mayurasana is right in your face. There's nobody here in this room who will do Mayurasana for one month, increasing the duration to the maximum which they can and not notice what a cannon blow, what a blaster Mayurasana is. It's one of the real shocking asanas of yoga. And 31, Kukutasana. Sit in Padmasana, that's the lotus pose, insert the hands between the thighs and the calves, and lift the body high up, standing on the hands. This is called Kukutasana. Kukuta in Sanskrit is a rooster, and it's just another thing. Like the rooster, if you look with a humoristic eye, like you are a caricaturist, a man performing caricatures, caricatural drawings, then a rooster is a funny, fuzzy, feathery thing perked on two ridiculous legs sticking from those feathers down. In a similar way, a yogi sitting in lotus lifts himself on his hands and looks slightly funny. And then this is the rooster pose. You look like a rooster when you do that. That's probably how the name came to be when somebody invented this posture or had a vision of it and tried it. And then somebody else seeing it said, ah, you look like a rooster. It's really ridiculous. And then this is how its name stayed. This asana looks very much like a yogi sitting in lotus and lifted about 20 centimeters above the ground. That's why the yogis developed the 
sweet, the urban legend we could almost say that this posture produces levitation. If you do it much, 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 the strain, another one like Mayurasana, if you stand, you, your subconscious mind is so tortured by the pressure and the pain that you put on your hands and arms that it will start unconsciously producing an effect of levitation, like your body will start getting lighter and lighter, so it doesn't press so much on your wrist anymore, and it's a way of pushing yourself to a place where out of desperation, your system will start producing natural levitation. 32. Kurmasana. But again, Garanda didn't speak about levitation. I'm just anecdotally telling you because this is, a, this is, for example, an asana which we don't teach in Agama curriculum. Not because it's not interesting or peculiar, but simply because many of our students cannot perform the lotus pose. And when you can't even perform the lotus pose, to try to perform kukutasana, which is a lotus pose in suspension, is a utopia, and therefore it's unrealistic. Some people of our advanced pupils who develop their flexibility and have excellent bodies and an excellent physical condition, they may look alternatively in kukutasana. 32. Kurmasana. Place the heel... Place the heels contrary-wise under the testicles, which means cross them, and keep the spine, neck, and head straight. This is called kurmasana. Huge difference from what Agama teaches us kurmasana. 90% of the yogis, of the yoga teachers in this world that heard about kurmasana, and they learned it from their teachers and they practice it, will of course agree with our point of view. Kurmasana is usually... In the slang of yoga, in the jargon of yoga, it is a name which is given to a, an entirely different asana, uh, which many of you know and practice. It's one of the dear and practiced asanas here in Agama. Kurmasana, as presented there, it's a sort of a sitting position, another cross-leg sitting position with the legs mysteriously crossed under the perineum. Um, again, that kind of kurmasana which Geranda describes is rather unpopular in the meaning that it's not widespread and I have not encountered many people in my life in yoga, maybe many connoisseurs of yoga who would say I do uh, kurmasana in the Geranda style, not in the other style. Most people who do kurmasana, they prefer to keep the name kurmasana for another asana taught here in uh, Agama as well. And then it, he comes with Utana Kurmasana. Utana is like sitting up, standing up, suspending. It is up, it is uplifted. And that simply says it's a Kurmasana which is somehow higher where you are standing up or where you are lifting on your hands or something. And he simply says, assume the Kukutasana Kukutasana is the rooster, so it's that funny position where you are in the lotus and you stick your arms among your legs and then roll on your back like a baby with your legs in the lotus like this and catch hold of the back of the neck. So you are just, it's a very weird position, only very flexible people can do it. Utana Kurmasana is one of the 32 classics of Garanda, which is not taught in Agama. 
probably there will be five to ten students in Agama who can perform it. Always when it comes to this super acrobatic contortionistic asanas of yoga, the question is if it's worth it when you study the report between the difficulty of it and the result of it. If there would be an asana which would instantaneously provide the states of samadhi after five minutes of practice, people would say it's worth every bit of it. It's where you have to put your life into it and try it because as soon as you've done this five minutes, you are going to see God. But when you do Utana Kurmasana, it's a very acrobatic, very contortionistic asana. Again, a limited number of people, less than 10% of people can do it. And then the question is, is it worth it? So it says, assume the Kukutasana, roll on the back and catch hold of the back of the neck with your hands, thus lying like a tortoise on its back. It's like you are a turtle turned upside down. It looks a bit exposed, helpless like this. This is Uttana Kurmasana. 34. Mandukasana. Manduka is a frog. It's a bullfrog. Point the feet backward under the buttocks with the big toes touching each other and the knees wide apart. It's a little bit like the Japanese style of sitting on your knees but spreading the legs as much as possible. This is called Mandukasana. Again, Geranda doesn't bother to say, and so what? Like, this is Mandukasana, and what's the big deal? It's a big deal. Mandukasana is a pretty famous asana, and while it looks relatively simple, it's a relatively simple sitting asana, it is legendary in yoga for some peculiar accomplishments which come with it. Just to anticipate for those like to see how far, the yoga tradition says that Mandukasana can produce states of invisibility of the body by a special form of concentration of the mind. And therefore, it's not a joke. It's a, these are serious asanas. Geranda doesn't go too much. It's like you learn from your teacher Mandukasana and what comes there. And then symmetrically, he has an Uttana Mandukasana, a Mandukasana lifted up like it was the previous Uttana Kurmasana. 35. Assume the Mandukasana. Hold or surround the head by the elbows, the same position which they, some yoga schools practice and like. So it's a mudra around the head like this. So surround uh, the head by the elbows and stand up uh, like an upright frog. This is called Uttana Mandukasana. Again, no reference to any special effects on this one. Vrikshasana, number 36. Stand on the left foot and place the right foot on the root of the left thigh. A little bit like this, standing, if I'd be standing. Like placing one foot up on the thigh of the other. And stand like an upright, I'm sorry, standing thus like a tree on the ground is called Vrikshasana. This statement, for example, contains, because it's basically a position when you stand on one leg. And many of these positions were used by the yogis to stand for a long time, to do tapas, to test their endurance and willpower, to test the detachment from the body and its pain and many such things. But in Vrikshasana, the formulation is beautiful because it says stand up, stand thus like a tree on the ground. How does a tree stand on the ground? It's in the ground. It is planted in the ground. 
It is rooted in the ground. You can't move a tree. If you move a tree, you kill it. You break it. You can't move the tree. It simply says the same thing. There is a tradition in the Qigong standing positions, like the horseman position and position standing on one leg, which is extended in yoga in Garudasana. It's extended in Hatha Yoga in Jiva Balasana. And it is extended in Vrikshasana, the tree. It's a form of tree. It's the most general name for the tree. And it simply says that when you stand like this for abnormally long periods of time, there appears a paranormal effect that you become immovable. It's like a paranormal thing. There have been people in yoga and in Tai Chi and Qigong who are standing like this and then they asked other people to push them. And they could not be pushed. It's like their legs were like trees. It's like they were like planted in the ground. And you can see images with martial artists and others like them getting pushed by five young bullies, like five young men, push on an elderly, frail man like Morihei Ueshiba. They can't move him one centimeter. It's like he is somehow screwed in the floor. He's like anchored in the floor. These effects appear from this standing positions for a long time because they cause a circulation of the cosmic and telluric energy and the human body becomes like a pillar between heaven and earth. And because of this, it's exactly like a pole which is anchored up and anchored down. And then if you try to shake it, it's exactly like you try to shake one of these poles in the yoga hall. You can't shake them. They seem to be unshakable. That's exactly the idea which is between the lines of this vrikshasana, the tree pose. So you see sometimes the formulations are very skillful. They want to tell us something between the lines without openly telling too much. Garudasana 37. Press the calves and thighs on the ground. Press the hands on the knees and press them down. This is called Garudasana. Here in Agama, such a posture would be called Brahmacharya Asana. And it has nothing to do with the Garudasana which we do here. It's again the same problem of the names. Geranda is the heir of a peculiar lineage of yoga where the names, some of the names, about, I would say, 20% of the names are used in a different way than they are used by other gurus, by other lineages. It doesn't disturb us, it's just for you to see how truly this world of yoga used to be. So Garudasana is a posture of sitting like in Brahmacharya Asana, like in Yoni Asana, and pressing the hands on the knees and all that. It's basically a peculiar sitting position, not very comfortable. No effect is actually given for it. Vrishasana, that's the bull. A very simple asana, which we teach here in Agama. It's one of the 12 astrological asanas. Very significant. In most yoga courses, you won't see it because it is deceptively easy. It seems like this is an asana where you are almost like lazy sitting and vrishasana. Place the anus on the right hill, like you sit with a hill in the perineum. And on the left side, the other foot turned up, like the thighs are sometimes sitting in this position. Mahatma Gandhi was sometimes sitting in a similar position. Touch the ground with the arms. This is vrishasana. Again, we are not given any details of what is it good for. I told you, just as spices added to this, 
that it's an astrological asana and it has many other significant effects. We are getting close to the end of this long list. 39 is Shalabhasana, which you all know from the first level. Lie on the floor face downwards and press the palms on the ground with the arms under the chest. Rise the legs in the air one cubit, called in Sanskrit Vitasti. Vitasti, a cubit, as it was measured, is about 9 inches, about 20 to 25 centimeters. That's about where the Indian cubit used to be. It's like about the measure of, a sh of an elbow of an averagely sized person. So raise the legs in the air about this much, about 25 centimeters. The great sages called here Munindra call this Shalabhasana. Uh, Munindra is an interesting name because sages, one of the names for the sadhus in India was Muni. Muni was a very funny name because actually Muni is somebody who practices Mauna, the Maunis. Maunis or Munis. And that would mean that the Munis would be sadhus who live in silence, who don't speak very much, who either live alone or even if they live in small spiritual communities, they practice the tapas of Mauna. Of course, not everybody in yoga practiced Mauna. Mauna is a peculiar tapas and it can prove itself to be very, very useful at times. It has definite amazing effects. But uh, so Muni is a bit of like not everybody who is a sadhu, not everybody who is a yogi, not everybody who is a swami is a Muni because you can be a sadhu and practice other tapasyas or other sadhanas, not Mauna. And that's why the name is a bit stretched. And here he actually says the great sages, he uses the expression Munindra, the Indras of the Munis. Indra is the king of the gods. And the Munindra is a king among Munis, like a very advanced Muni. It's not a sage, it's a great sage. So the great sages call this Shalabhasana. Again, it doesn't tell us almost anything about what benefits you may expect from such practice. Four asanas left in this long list. So we are at number 29 of that list, Shloka 40. Lion Makarasana. Makara is a very funny name because it, it's translated usually as a crocodile, but actually in the Indian mythology, Makara is a monstrous creature which is part whale, part dolphin, part crocodile, part swordfish, and it is a sort of Leviathan of the Greek mythology where the name, of course, uh, the original name was applied to whales and other big uh, sea creatures. Makara is a sort of a sea monster and it has a special meaning. When you say Makara Asana, for the yogis it rings two bells. The astrological sign of Capricorn is called Makara. So this is the posture corresponding to the Capricorn. And Makara is an animal which is present in the symbolism of Svadhisthana Chakra. So when you have a posture which is called Makara Asana, it tells you automatically that it probably does something to your Svadhisthana Chakra because it corresponds to one of the archetypal symbols used in the description of Svadhisthana Chakra. Makarasana is another deceptively easy asana, which we teach here in Agama out of respect for the tradition of the 32 classical asanas, and which many yoga teachers ignore because they think it's too easy. It's simply like a joke, like if 
there are yoga teachers who fall in the trap of thinking that all the yoga which you do must really be acrobatic. It must really be difficult because otherwise it's a joke. You are not proving that you are a yogi if you don't put your legs behind your neck. Then you are a yogi. But the funny thing is that Yogananda, Shivananda, Aurobindo and Ramakrishna, none of them probably could put their legs behind their neck and they are titans of yoga. So there is a severe misunderstanding. Back to our story, let's describe Makarasana. Lie on the ground with face downwards, legs stretched and chest touching the floor. Hold the head with the two arms, like you are waking up in the morning after sleeping on your belly. This is Makarasana that increases the heat of the body, Deha Agni. That's a very strange mention. See, we have an asana related to Svadhisthana. We have an asana related to the Capricorn, which is an earth sign in astrology. So you think about Muladhara Svadhisthana, but Geranda suddenly throws the cat among the pigeons by this little sentence. It says, this is Makarasana that increases the heat of the body. There's only one thing which increases the heat of the body. Manipura Chakra, period. So if Makarasana increases the heat of the body, it means it collaterally does something to your Manipura Chakra. Therefore, it is, you always get pointers and hints like this in the yoga tradition from different teachers who gave such little secrets, such, such little pearls of information. The 30th on this list, Shloka 41, is Ushtrasana, the camel pose. Lie on the ground with face downwards, fold up the legs back and hold them with the hands. Contract forcibly the mouth or the cheeks. In Sanskrit, the word used is Ganda. So contract forcefully the face and the abdomen. This is called Ushtrasana. This description corresponds powerfully to what in Agama we call Dhanurasana. You lie, you catch hold of your legs and then you contract the body. That results in Dhanurasana, the posture of the bow. But those of you who have been here last time, you remember that when we spoke about Dhanurasana, you saw that Dhanurasana can be interpreted as Halasana. So it's a whole domino principle that things are falling and like one name is wrong and one name calls something else and that something else replaces something else. And in this way there is a whole chain of interaction here which may disturb. Ushtrasana in the classical yoga is a little bit like this but it's done in a standing position on your knees and it has an equivalent name which all of you will immediately remember. It's Dandasana, Dandasana or Ushtrasana. That's the classical way of designating it. Here Ushtrasana is a name used with a different approach. And 31, the last but one in the list is described in two shlokas and that's nothing else than Bhujangasana, a classic taught quite early in the Agama program. Let the body from toes till navel touch the ground. So all the way to the navel if possible. Place the palms on the ground and rise the head and the upper part of the body like a serpent. This is called Bhujangasana. It increases the bodily heat, Deha Agni again, destroys all diseases and its persevering practice, called here by the word Sadhana, which means you do it every day. It's like a tapas. It's a regular practice. It's persevering regular practice awakens Kundalini Shakti. In the text, Kundalini Shakti is not called Kundalini in this shloka. She is called Bujagi Devi. Buja, like cobra, 
Devi goddess, the, the, the cobra goddess, which is a slang. It is a sort of a metaphoric name, or any connoisseur in yoga would say, what cobra Devi, what cobra goddess. Cobra goddess can mean only Kundalini Shakti uh, by the classical name, but the yogis speak in this oblique language. See, for Bhujangasana, suddenly Geranda got again enthusiastic. He spends two shlokas and he says quite a few effects. Again, when you compare it with Bhujangasana, you say, but does he say something about Anahata? Does he say something about this? No. Geranda, when he wants to boil it down, he says, what does Bhujangasana do? Well, Bhujangasana increases the bodily heat. Well, this is Manipura, right? This is not about Anahata. You don't increase the body heat with Anahata. You increase the body heat with Manipura. So here Geranda tells us there is a little bit of effect of Bhujangasana on Manipura if you do it properly. So it increases the bodily heat, destroys all diseases. It's again one of those phantasmagoric statements because you can say if you have Down syndrome and you do cobra pose, will it heal your Down syndrome? Well, it's a little bit over-enthusiastic to say that Bhujangasana heals all diseases. If you want to be, if you'd want to be more rationalistic and less uh, bombastic, like many yogis in India were, then you would say it heals uh, scores of diseases. It heals a whole host of diseases. Quite a number of diseases are healed by the, like this Bhujangasana doesn't look like much, but it's a good, nice healing asana. It heals a lot of things, trust it. Destroys all diseases, or at least a host of them, and its persevering practice awakens Kundalini Shakti. That's what's important. Now, like for him, Kundalini is the real deal. The other things are important, like a very healing asana. That's why we teach it so early in the Agama program, and uh, it increases the body heat. That is, again, an interesting collateral there, and it awakens Kundalini Shakti, which is the condition of further evolution. When you awaken Kundalini, then you are poised for higher states of consciousness, for Siddhis, and for other things which will happen. So, a great value placed on Bhujangasana, and the last asana described in the series by Geranda, the number 32 in the series, is none else than Yoga Asana. Many of you are going to say, but we didn't hear about the shoulder stand. We didn't hear about the headstand. Like, mysteriously, Geranda seems to leave out of the picture a few asanas which are grand classics of yoga, where you are going to see the explanation of some of it, not of all of it, because, of course, as I said, Geranda has got his own system. Yoga Asana. Turn the feet upwards and place each of them on the respective opposite knee. That's the lotus pose, redescribed. He could have said simply do the, do an open Padmasana. Place there the palms turned up. It's a peculiar position where the palms are turned up one way or another. There are two ways of doing it. Inhale the Vayu and fix the gaze on the tip of the nose. It's interesting that it doesn't say inhale the air. It says inhale the Vayu, which is wind in Sanskrit, but it also means subtle energies. So the language is always a bit of a twilight language where two things can be understood. And Geranda is very happy to leave it ambiguous because it means two things at the same time. And that's on purpose. He means you are sitting in this 
lotus like pose, inhale the prana, inhale the energy, the vayu, and then do trataka on the tip of the nose. This is called yogasana, assumed by the yogins that do persevering practice or sadhana. Gyaranda thinks that this asana is and that beloved asana. As you can see, it's not about leaning forward, and that's why the version of yogasana which we do, it's again a sort of a main trend version. Gyaranda, when he says yogasana, he means something else than we generally do. Anyway, and he says this is yogasana assumed by the yogis that do persevering practice. Like if you want to do an asana again and again, do yoga asana, says Gyaranda. This ends the second lesson of the Gyaranda Samhita in the dialogue between Gyaranda and Chanda called Asana Prayoga of the Gatashta Yoga. So this is the colophon for the second chapter. And because we still have a little bit of time and it's very fascinating to go there, I would like to give you a taste of the mudras. In the third level, Gyaranda said that First, you need to get purification. Then you need to get inner and outer strength. And then the third condition, he said, you need to get stability. You need to become very stable. And he says stability is acquired by mudras. You are going to see that when he speaks about mudras, he speaks about a very wide category of techniques. Some of them are the techniques which Agama Yoga uses in the Kundalini Yoga program, but not only. Shambhavi Mudra is taught in the very first level of yoga, in the first level intensive, and you are going to discover that the way Geranda describes some of these mudras, it actually corresponds to some asanas still. So it's a mixture here, <coughs> but all the mudras are definitely working more on inner ability on the fixation, on the concentration, on the energy. And most of them are related to Kundalini Yoga. That's why most of them are related to paranormal abilities and to altered states of consciousness. As you are going to see, uh, here Geranda gets back to his sweet toe, to his sweet uh, key note of secrecy. That the, while the asanas were visible, with the mudras, the secrecy levels are increased. Just to see a taste. He starts simply by listing them in the first three shlokas. Mahamudra, Nabhomudra, Udhyana, Jalandhara, Mulabandha, Mahabandha, Mahaveda, Kechari, Viparita Karani, Yoni, Vajroli, Shaktichalani, Tadagi, Manduki Mudra, Shambhavi, Panchadharana, Ashvini, Pashini, Kakki, Matangi, and Bhujangini. These are the 25 mudras that give perfection to the yogis. He again uses the name Siddhi. And you understand what you want. What perfection do they give? The Siddhi that one levitates or the Siddhi that one can stay in Samadhi for three days and three nights. Both of them are Siddhis, only that one of them refers to pure spirituality while another one of them refers to some paranormal abilities. So he leaves it open because some of the mudras indeed give paranormal things, and some of the mudras give spiritual effects. So he claims he's going to describe 25 mudras. In the Shiva Samhita, another of the great texts, which we'll comment, probably not immediately after this one, 
I will change the thematic after we finish with the Geranda Samhita, so I don't keep talking about these texts non-stop. In the Shiva Samhita, the text quotes ten fundamental mudras for the rising of Kundalini. Here, Geranda quotes 25. But of course, some of them are just mental concentrations, where some of them are complex processes of body and breath. And in the shlokas number 4 and 5, he wants to tell to his disciple Chanda Kapali why the, what is the story about the mudras. And he says Maheshvara, which is a name of Shiva. So Shiva, addressing his consort Parvati, has set forth the benefits of the mudras in these words. So he quotes, he pretends he quotes from some older text or from some of his teachers told him. He says that's what Shiva has said about the mudras. He prefers not to say it in his own words. He prefers to quote Shiva himself. And he says, O Devi, I will tell you them of the mudras. Their knowledge leads to all perfections. Sarvasiddhi. Sarvasiddhi is a word like all siddhis, the entire siddhis, which would mean both the spiritual ones and the paranormal ones. So now with the mudras, we got to the kundalini, we got to the real powerful things. So here he doesn't use ambiguous, he used sarva siddhi, which means both those and those, all the siddhis, says Shiva. Therefore, the, the mudras, their knowledge and practice lead to all perfections. And continues Shiva, they should be kept secret and should not be taught indiscriminately to everyone. Again, we are getting into that zone of yoga where things are inner circle. They give happiness to the yogins. Here Shiva or Geranda uses the word priti, which is a word which means like ecstasy, like states of ecstasy. So he says this working on Kundalini can give ecstatic states to the yogis, and even the marutas cannot master them easily. End of quote. Marutas, technically in the Vedic tradition, are the gods of the wind and storms. When there is a storm, they say that the marutas are agitating the winds and they produce the storm. They are like buoyant, turbulent, shining creatures, spirits of nature, a sort of uh, fairies, only that they are male. And also the marutas are considered sometimes to be scary, a little bit hideous. Like some in some countries, the fairies are considered to be scary, although lovely. And the marutas are traditionally uh, soldiers of Shiva. There are the Ganas and the Vetalas and the Marutas are three sorts of spirits which are supposed to be direct servants of Shiva. So Shiva says, even my subordinated Marutas, exactly like the Judeo-Christian God, would speak about angels. And he would say, even the angels can't do this properly all the time. Here, Shiva says, even my Marutas, which are my direct servants, sometimes cannot master them easily. That's a statement which is often made about some yoga techniques. It is said that because the human being has a physical body and the proper concentration of the mind, sometimes with this body and with energy and with concentration of the mind, you can do things which even some gods cannot manage to do it because they don't have enough grip on the energy, they don't have enough concentration 
or stability because they don't have a physical body. And that is a statement which is not uniquely in Geranda Samhita that they say you can do this and this. Even the gods have difficulties in mastering this technique, which means advanced techniques which need to be taken from a guru. You need a proper transmission for those techniques because Shiva says even some demigods cannot really practice this well sometimes. Well, if the demigods cannot practice, how can a human being hope to practice it well? That's the advantage of being a human being. Sometimes a human being can do things which cause the envy of invisible spirits because the human beings have a privileged position in this universe, although being subjected to so many limitations at the same time. And uh, Garanda starts with the Mahamudra. Out of the 25, the first on his list was Mahamudra, which here in Agama you are going to learn among the last mudras, because this is a blockbuster, it's a real hardcore mudra, and um, uh, it's one of the mudras which in Kundalini Yoga, it can even be dangerous, it can cause damage if not properly learned and practiced. Of course, Geranda will not describe it with the details. Any one of you in this room has already done Mahamudra, by comparing it with what Geranda says, you can say, right, if you are an outsider and you just lay hands on this book and you read it, you don't really understand what is to be done. The details are not given, and that is, of course, on purpose. First, shlokas 6 and 7, where the practice is described. Firmly press the anus by the left heel while stretching the right leg and catching hold of its big toe by the hands. Contract the throat by which he means do Jalandharabandha, but he doesn't say it so. Contract the throat, fix the gaze between the eyebrows, converging trataka, frontal trataka, and hold the breath, but the word used is vayu, which also means hold the energy, hold the prana. Vayu means prana as well. This is called Mahamudra by the wise. Of course, this doesn't really describe it. It describes the position and it is very amusing to see that people say, oh, but according to Geranda Samhita, this is Mahamudra. But in Mahamudra, some of the things which you do, some very, very important things which trigger the Kundalini Shakti, are not described. They are not described on purpose so that you can't get it from the book and do it and harm yourself because your nadis are impure and you are not prepared for such strong experiments. And that's why... Uh, some external things are described properly, but the actual practice, no. And then he gives, he thinks that Mahamudra deserves some eulogy, it deserves some praise, it deserves some effects listed. It says, he says in Shloka 8 from chapter 3, it's persevering practice, so he, he uses the word sadhana. Sadhana means regular practice. It doesn't mean you practice it three days now and two days next month. That's not sadhana. Sadhana is when you practice something every day. Chinese drop. German clockwork. Like you practice it systematically all the time. So it's persevering practice or sadhana. Cures consumption, cough, obstruction of the bowels, enlargement of the spleen, 
indigestion and fever. It eliminates signs of old age and bestows long life. Indeed, it destroys all diseases. Like eventually he gets back to his favorite formula that it does pretty much everything. Because all these things which it does, some of them are so, like it cures consumption. That's tuberculosis. It's like how many people suffer really from consumption and so on. And it's like especially yogis living in the Himalayas and and consumption, tuberculosis, is a deadly disease, or it was in those days. So curing consumption is a huge thing, and it cures cough, okay, maybe it's something still related with the lungs and so on. Obstruction of the bowels, that can mean constipation, indigestion. It can make also, it can mean intestinal occlusion in medical terms. But how, how would you get that solved by Mahamudra? is not understood medically. Enlargement of the spleen, because you are at some point bending over like this and you compress. But actually when in yoga, when you say enlargement of the spleen, it says enlargement of the spleen and the liver, because everything which you do on the left side, you do on the right side as well. And then it destroys the enlargement. So here there are many, many things said between the connoisseurs when they read such a thing, they always read between the lines and they know that he wanted to say much more, but he didn't want to waste time and paper and he didn't want to spend too many shlokas on it. So he just goes like diagonally. It's exactly like you read a page of a text diagonally and you just keep five things diagonally. But on that page there are 30 things, not five. The others are like in between those five. Cures consumption, cough, obstruction of the bowels, enlargement of the spleen indigestion and fever. Many of these things are digestive troubles on Manipura. Many of them are things on Muladhara. Some of them, like curing consumption, is definitely having a lot to do with Anahata Chakra. So there is a lot on a lot of chakras, and in the end it says it eliminates the signs of old age and bestows long life. Indeed, it destroys all diseases. Basically what it says is that Mahamudra is not just a technique which works on a chakra or two. It's a technique which activates Kundalini and it simply explodes a huge healing energy inside you. And because of that, it has multiple effects on multiple chakras and at multiple levels. It's a technique which is huge. Mahamudra, it starts the series of the mudras with one of the techniques which is really big and versatile and it addresses lots of things. The second in his list is Nabho Mudra, which is really a funny name because Nabhi in Sanskrit means belly button, like in Nabhi Asana. So when you say Nabho Mudra, you'd expect something in the navel area. But Nabho Mudra, again, who wrote the name, uh, the name used by most yogis is Jihva Banda, the contraction of the tongue, because it describes a very classical position of the tongue. It says, in whatever action a yogin may be engaged, or wherever he may be, yatra yatra, they say, like wherever, 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 whenever, let him always keep his tongue turned and press upward which means you are touching the tip of your tongue up in the vault of the palate. You press up with the tongue. So basically this Nabho Mudra says, 
day in and day out, if you sleep, whatever you do, press the tongue on the vault of the palate. Keep the tongue connected up. The same exercise is known as jiva bandha, the contraction of the tongue. It's used in many other mudras and pranayamas. It's used in many other yogic exercises. The Tibetans use it. The Taoist practitioners use it to connect two meridians with each other. And therefore, there is a lot of stuff about this. Here, Geranda chose for a mysterious reason to call it Nabho Mudra, which when I first read, I thought it would be related with the umbilical area, and it isn't. So, or whatever, whenever, let the yogi always keep his turned and pressed upwards and control his breath. Again, controlling the breath means many things. It means stay quiet, stay centered, be equanimous, don't let the energy go out of balance. For example, in Ayurveda, if you are having the hiccups, it means one of your ten vayus is out of its location. So basically, the solution for the yogis to stop a hiccup is to go into Laya Yoga or to go into the Madhyanadi, to center, because as soon as you center yourself, the hiccup stops. When you have a chaotic or a chronical hiccup, that's an example of the fact that you are not controlling your breath in an enlarged meaning of the word, because it doesn't mean only the physical breath. So keep the tongue up, control the breath. This is called Nabho Mudra, and it destroys all the diseases of the yogin. Again, skeptical doctors may choose to disagree with this one, and indeed, rationally, it is so. It basically says, and the Taoists consider this mudra, the key of the microcosmic orbit, that once you connected this, the energy can come up through the back, up through the spine, through the back of the head, to the top of the head, down to the upper lip. From here, the tongue bridges it to the lower lip, to the lower jaw, and from the lower lip, it comes down along the chest and down to the genitals and to the perineum. And in this way, the energy starts cycling, and you create the microcosmic orbit. And that's why, of course, you would say, if a Taoist man is doing the macrocosmic orbit, then maybe he can do a heal, balance, uh, you know, generate a state of, if the energies are all balanced and all centered, then you are healthy. You can't be sick. Any sickness is a form of the energy going out of its hinges, out of its uh, normal channels. And that's why, of course, you can say that in a wider meaning, keeping your energy centered, even with the help of the tongue exercise, might indeed keep disease away from you. But formulating it that it destroys all the diseases of the yogin is considered by many people exaggerated, bombastic, phantasmagoric, like not realistic, simply. And we are getting to the famous, a couple more and then I'll stop for tonight. It gets in shloka number 10 to the famous Udhyana Banda, our daily crucifixion here for those who need to sublime the energy, says Geranda, shloka number 10, draw backwards the belly equally above and below the navel so that the abdominal organs may touch the back. Weird description. He doesn't describe that it comes from the diaphragm muscle, that you hold your breath in void retention. It sounds almost like you're contracting your muscles back until as far back as you can. But that's not how Udhyana Bandha is done. That's why you can see he doesn't intend to teach it. He just intends to remind you 
Everybody who did with the Anabanda will say, draw backwards the belly. Yeah, I know how to do that. Thus, the great bird, which is a syntax for prana, the energy, flies upwards. See, he said it in one go, like you do with the Anabanda, and what's the effect? The prana moves upwards. That's the essential thing to be said about Udhyana Banda. This Banda is called Udhyana and is like a lion to the elephant of death. I will not explain in this uh, satsang too much about this. Basically, <coughs> for people living in the nature, <coughs> it is known that sometimes lions can kill elephants in spite of the fact that it's looks almost impossible, the elephant being like an armored tank, gigantic, and the lion is relatively small, the lion is so fierce and so powerful that after many, many hours of struggle, it can even kill an elephant. And death has been called Mrityu Gaja, the elephant of death, Mrityu Matangi, the elephant of death, and so death is compared to an elephant, and Udhyana Banda is like a lion to the elephant of death, which means it can kill death. If it kills your death, it means at least it can prolong your life. It can save your life several times. Of course, many people would say, well, if you do yoga like Babaji, the guru of the guru of the guru of Yogananda, then it may even produce a form of physical immortality. That's one of the mudras. See here, things are getting more radical with the mudras. The effects are more out of proportion because here we are talking about kundalini work. So, thus the great bird prana flies upwards, effect number one. This banda is called uddiyana and it is like a lion to the elephant of death, which says a very big thing. And... 11 continues with the effects of Udhyana Banda, which is also beautiful. It says, of all the Bandhas, this is the best and most special. <coughs> so, sometimes the yogis have a way saying, which is the best asana? Some yogis would say, Siddhasana. Which is the best Banda? Which is the best Mudra? Which is the best this and that? And here it says it straightforward. <coughs> of all the Bandhas, thinks Geranda, this is the best and most special. Udhyana Banda is number one among the Bandas. And to show why he gives it such a praise, of course it's enough that the energy goes up and it is the lion to the elephant of death, he mentions a third big one where he says, if properly practiced, which means properly practiced qualitatively but also quantitatively, if properly practiced, it makes liberation. The word used is mukti, which is the yoga equivalent for enlightenment. Mukti means to reach the state of samadhi and to stop the condition of reincarnation. So he says, if properly practiced, it makes liberation or mukti natural or easy. Like once you sublime and sublime and do thousands of Udhyana Bandhas, your kundalini keeps going up and up and up. This is your second nature. You have created a second nature. And then it says it makes liberation natural. Like somebody who has done 30 years of Udhyana Banda has no other place to go but in Sahasrara eventually. 
It's like it becomes your second nature. You do so much Udhyana Bandha until you get sucked in Sahasrara, and that's the end of it. So that's why it's the biggest of the mudras, of the bandhas here, because it makes liberation easy. It's, you want, no, you say, I have difficulties in subliming my energy. Double up the number of your Udhyana bandhas, and if it's still, you are too heavy, double it up again. And if it's still too heavy, double it up again. Get to do a hundred Udhyana bandhas per day, and you'll see that spirituality becomes easy. It becomes natural. Here is a physical way of dealing with it. The last for tonight is another of the great classics, which is, of course, Jalandhara. Not called Jalandhara Bandha, just Jalandhara. But, of course, he later calls it Jalandhara Bandha. Two shlokas for it. First, contracting the throat, place the chin on the chest. This Jalandhara brings all the 16 Adharas under control and closes them. There is a theory that the 16 channels of Vishuddha Chakra, the 16 spokes of Vishuddha Chakra, are connected with 16 very important points of energy and that we lose a lot of vital and important energy here. And by doing Jalandhara Bandha, you lock this area. And because of this, uh, you one gets control over this mysterious energies of Vishuddha. And to prove how big this is, how important this is, he again splashes it big time by making another huge statement. He says, it's still in Shloka 12, he says, this great Jalandhara, and here there is a variation because he says, Maha Jalandhara Bandha, like he says, this great Jalandhara Bandha, but in Sanskrit, this syntagm is translatable as this Jalandhara Bandha, as well as the Mahamudra, which was described three mudras ago. So both can, this says, this great Jalandhara conquers death. He doesn't explain how or why, but he says, you want to conquer death, practice four to eight hours of Jalandhara Bandha per day, and you will see it happening. Of course, nothing comes easy in yoga. Like if anybody thinks they can cheat and cut some corners, sometimes there are smart ways, but nobody can eventually cheat maximum. At least Geranda, who is a great master of the tradition, he didn't find a way of doing it in five minutes. He says, you do Jalandhara Bandha and you will reach immortality. This Jalandhara Bandha, Maybe together with Mahamudra, because the word Maha is, meant, is mentioned here, so it makes it ambiguous. This Jalandhara Bandha, as well as Mahamudra, conquers death. And 13, the last shloka for tonight, and the last shloka to talk about Jalandhara, it says, mastery of Jalandhara Bandha. Here he uses the word Bandha, not just Jalandhara. Mastery of Jalandhara Bandha brings perfect Perfection to the yogin. Again, the word siddhi is used. And he just said you can conquer death. Is that a paranormal phenomenon? Or is that a form of enlightenment? Is it spiritual immortality that we're talking about? Or is it physical immortality that we're talking about? He's very happy to leave it in the middle. Like it means both of them. And you can interpret it any way you want. So he says this... Mastery of Jalandhara Bandha brings perfection or siddhi to the yogin. 
by practicing it for six months, but practicing it for these people means four times per day, like with Anuloma, Viloma, and other standard, like practicing about eight hours of Jalandhara, for six months, one becomes a Siddha without doubt. Again, it is not said what a Siddha means, because for some people a Siddha means a yogi endowed with paranormal abilities, and for some people it means that one becomes spiritually enlightened, a Jivan Mukta, a spiritually perfected person. Six months, like you learn Jalandharabandha, and then it's up to you to do it eight hours per day for six months. This is always the issue, because people have potlucks, and they surf on internet, and they don't do eight hours of Jalandharabandha. Theoretically, the text composed by some fanatic in the 18th century says, I know you are distracted and probably you won't do this, but if you would have the balls of doing it like this for six months, then you would become a Siddha without doubt. Like Geranda is putting his shoulder in it. He simply says, if you do this for six months, you become a Siddha, no doubt. Like, I am guaranteeing, you know, like, don't doubt for a second. This R, already bigger than the Kriyas, they are bigger than the asanas. We're talking about mudras, complex practices, which often produce, most of them, produce effects at the level of kundalini and great powerful movements of energy. We teach Udhyana, Jalandhara, and a few others, even before people get to the kundalini yoga program, because they are necessary for people in their practice. And here is uh, the shocking text from Geranda, how big Jalandharabandha actually is. It conquers death. It gives Siddhi. And in six months, one can become a Siddha just by practicing tons of Jalandharabandha. This is where it goes. This is the spirit. This is the magic spirit, the paranormal spirit of the yogis. And as we'll go through further mudras and technologies, you are going to hear more about Geranda's opinion about the mudras. So we are stopping at the shloka number 13. We'll continue with the Mula Bandha next time. It's enough for now. I'm sure it was a bit difficult at times for you because we just kept on going through a list of techniques. I can only guarantee that as soon as it gets over the mudras, then he starts going to the more metaphysical, to the different meditations and other spiritual parts of yoga, especially the first three chapters, the Kriya Yoga, the asanas and the mudras, are very systematic, and uh, while it makes a bit of a tedious reading, we are very grateful overall to Geranda, because his compendium, his treatise, is one of the most encyclopedic things left to us from the yoga practice of classical Hatha and Kundalini Yoga. Enough for tonight. Thank you all for joining the satsang of tonight. And in the next satsang, I will continue with the rest of the mudras and further on from Geranda's treatise. Enough for tonight. This was a live recording of Swami Vivekananda Saraswati. 
For more information, visit us on agamayoga.com or go directly to agamayoga.com slash downloads.